every experiment can be small and it's more effective for an experiment to be small. But like if your larger ambition is small, then that very, very rarely becomes something big. To the School of Innovation podcast. My guest today is Tom Chi. Tom has worked in roles ranging from astrophysical researcher to Fortune 500 consultant to corporate executive developing hardware software products and services. He pioneered and practices a unique approach to rapid prototyping and leadership that can jumpstart innovative new ideas and move large organizations at unprecedented speeds. He was head of product experience and a founding member of Google X and currently works to accelerate a future where humanity becomes a net positive to nature. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you please consider leaving a short review on Apple Podcasts? It takes less than 60 seconds and it really makes a difference in helping to convince Hard to get guests. Thank you. Hey, Tom. Welcome back to school. Hey, great to be here. Uh, listen, you know, uh, as I was doing research for this uh, for this episode, um, I realized that right around the time that I launched this podcast, which was around early February, you actually launched a venture fund. So Mazel Tov. Oh, thank you. And the fund is called At One Ventures, and I'm curious to know what made you want to become a VC? Well, I'd already been working in venture capital for about four years ahead of launching my own firm and fund. Uh, The reason to go launch this was, um, it's called At One Ventures because it's about being at one with ourselves, nature, and the universe. And what that means practically is we invest in disruptive deep tech to reimagine how how uh, the industrial economy is put together so that we can create a civilization that is a net positive to nature. So the idea is that let's you know work toward a world where every year that humanity is on the planet, nature is healthier because we're here as opposed to you know what we've been doing for the last uh, couple hundred or thousand years. Right. So is it creating a new order or is it disrupting the existing one? I'm not really sure that there is that much of a difference between those two choices. Absolutely, we try to uh, completely reboot how specific industries work. When you look at the most polluting and damaging industries, uh, then you kind of go into the core physics of why are their unit economics the way that they currently are? What are some radical technical innovations that could completely shake up those unit economics? And then we invest in the ones where both the unit economics and the environmental economics are radically better because of these changes. And that oftentimes implies a a reboot for how the entire industry is organized. Can you give me an example of companies or technologies that you're looking at? Well, people can go to the website. We already have um, eight things in our portfolio with two soon to be added. So plenty of examples. Uh, one of them is a company that has reinvented 
air conditioning so that um, it runs 30 to 50% more efficiently, but also has 6,000 times less greenhouse gas impact from refrigerants. And for folks that are in the know, refrigerants are one of the most potent, well, it is the class of um, you know, industrial chemistry that we use that is the most potent greenhouse gas uh, with you know, half-life in the atmosphere that might be 20,000, 50,000, 100,000 years and huge warming potential uh, above, you know, even carbon dioxide and methane. So, yeah, if you can reduce the impact of that by 6,000x, then it would be similar to taking every car off the road. Uh, so we're definitely taking, we're aiming for big swings. Yeah. I uh, want to take you, um, take a stroll down memory lane, if you will, indulge me for, for a bit. You've done so many things. A lot of them were key innovation roles. Can you point out to one you think kind of shaped what you're doing today? Sure. I mean, um, I was one of the founding team members of Google X. So I worked on Google Glass, self-driving car, Project Loon, uh, the contact lens that can continuously measure your glucose levels. I was part of the leadership team. So I hired all of their designers and user researchers and also um, developed the career ladders for and helped to hire the majority of the mechanical engineers, industrial designers, electrical engineers for the group. So those were all reasonably important for putting together the teams that could go in and uh, innovate in a lot of different sectors. But, you know, it's related to the work that I'm doing now in that it's very similar in terms of the level of ambition and scope. But, you know, I'm doing it with startups, so they need to become commercial way sooner than than the Google X projects needed to. And also, I'm, I'm doing that kind of rapid invention and, and disruption uh, on behalf of a world where humanity is a net positive to nature. So just a, a clear thesis around what we would do it for. Right. Are you, um, you, you make a lot of small bets that over time aggregate in and create a big impact as opposed to like you put all your effort investment into like this one bucket, one big bet that hopefully will play out. So I'm kind of curious as to why you're like in the second camp versus the first camp or what you think about the first camp of small bets. So you can go after things that are very ambitious but then the way that you actually achieve them is by doing hundreds of small experiments. So I, I also think that question is not exactly the question because the main choice is do you go after big things and do them in a monolithic way, kind of like the General Electric Six Sigma uh, innovation approach, or do you do go after big things and do it in a uh, rapid prototyping, quick experimentation way. And those are the main choices around big things. But you can also just choose to do small things, and that's just a completely different category. Okay. Do you think that the smaller things have a, um, a chance to create the same impact as going after the big bets? I, I think people are just making pretty different set of decisions if they... Because, like, let's say my small you know, my small bet is I want to go make a healthy donut shop. Okay. 
So like, you know, in, in that world, it's like I plan for a particular size of thing. I, you know, um, my, my marketing approach is to put up flyers, you know, in the neighborhood. It, it's like everything kind of flows from uh, kind of just the, the size of the thing that you're going after. And it's not that, you know, a, a healthy donut shop could never become something bigger. But, you know, folks that aim for the thing to be small in the first place, like the goal for it to be small. Uh, like I said before, every experiment can be small and it's more effective for an experiment to be small. But like if your larger ambition is small, then that very, very rarely becomes something big. You mentioned rapid prototyping or rapid or prototype thinking, sorry, a couple of times. And actually in 2016, you founded a company around that. Where did that idea come from and, and what is it? Like, how do you define prototype thinking? So it's kind of like a scientific method for the design of new things. Like Buckminster Fuller called it design science. You know, prototype thinking is another way to go describe it or Rapid prototyping is another way to describe it, uh, where I kind of focus on teaching people the practical skill of it as opposed to the theory of it. But what is it? What is design science or, you know, rapid prototyping about? Well, if you think about the natural sciences, there's already a thing that works in the world. So let's say you wanted to study the function of a leaf, or you wanted to understand how a bird's wing works. Well, those things already really work well. They, they do something very interesting, and they do them consistently, and they are seen all throughout nature in various ways. And something like that is very amenable to the realm of science, because science basically says, we'll do repeated uh, studies of you know, the bird wing mechanism or the function of a leaf uh, until we're able to go derive some underlying understanding and principles of operation of the thing. And, you know, it's basically like you do a whole set of experiments and it kind of un, uh, reveals something interesting about the natural world through that, that process, of ex process of experimentation. But in a way, the solution is already done because the leaf already does something really well and the bird's wing already does something really well. Now, this is different than engineering, right? In engineering, there are lots of different ways that things could turn out. So you, you have an issue in engineering and most of business, really, where people are going to posit a lot of things that are just not going to work. So you might sit in a meeting and you say, oh, you know what would be a great idea? So-and-so. And not only do they get excited about that great idea, they, you know, they get so excited about they, they make a whole presentation around it and then they start you know, evangelizing it around the company. It's like, we got to go in this direction because so-and-so is a great idea. In practice, that's just not clear whether that's true or not yet. And we spend a lot of our time in business uh, when we're trying to design or engineer new things, uh, effectively spending our time on ideas that won't work. Because the majority of things that you just come up with on any given day of the week are, are not going to work. And in working with lots of teams, I would peg that at about 95%. You know, 95% of ideas that we come up with in the business context do not work exactly the way that we're saying. Like maybe part of it works or, you know, there's a little gem of it, you know, in in the longer thing that's being said. But, you know, there there's very few ideas that, you know, straight out of your mouth is exactly the way that the thing is going to work. But we 
we start out with this raw material, which is 95% wrong, and we spend most of our time just arguing and debating and discussing that material before we ever get on to the making of anything. And what prototype thinking and really what design science was about as well was, why don't we just skip all those steps? Like as soon as you have a thing, let's just make it. And when we make it, we're going to see whether it does anything useful or not. And in the seeing of whether it does anything useful or not, then we can actually start to have the discussion. So that sounds like it would take longer, but it doesn't take longer if you can get fast at making things and ergo the rapid part of rapid prototyping. So if you, if you think it's going to take you six months to make a piece of hardware, it's perfectly logical for you to spend two months debating you know, whether you should make it this way or that way before you make it. But if it's going to take you, you know, three hours to make a piece of hardware, then it would be completely ridiculous to spend two months talking about whether you should make it or not. And that's the real gist there. That's why I teach the skill of making things very quickly. Why do you think um, corporates don't, um, don't embrace that kind of thinking? Because most, most corporates don't i mean they're they're much more content in you know sitting in meeting rooms and debating rather than just building and testing why does that not work in the real world or maybe it does but they don't know how to make it work well it definitely works in the real world because that's how we invented a ton of things at google and that's also how i invented a lot of things throughout my career so I'm a named inventor on 75 patents, and I patented maybe 3% of what I've built. So uh, definitely works. But what I'll say is that a bunch of companies don't adopt it, uh, mostly for cultural historical reasons. Like the companies that do do this, that do experiment quickly and try a lot of iterations and are continuously you know, testing their assumptions and building off of them, those are the ones that we see in the marketplace right now as the the most formidable. When Amazon bought Whole Foods, there was a huge buzz. And I'm connected with the, you know, grocery stores and the kind of the food industry. And there was a huge amount of buzz on all the channels, like, oh my gosh, like what does this mean now? And the reason that people were freaking out is they understand Amazon to be one of those organizations that that does rapid experimentation and improvement. And I think they implicitly understood that the Creative experimentation and improvement at an Amazon uh, outstrips the average in their industry by a lot, and and ergo that pickup. Even though Amazon would not, you know, ahead of that, you would not consider them to be a grocery company, is extremely formidable. And if you were to compare that to, well, what if Whole Foods was not bought by Amazon? What if Whole Foods was bought by Walmart? You wouldn't have the same response. You'd be like, you know, Walmart's a big company. They do some good work on logistics and supply chain, you know, probably Whole Foods will get a little bit more efficient, but nobody would be sweating about it. Uh, they, they would just be like, yeah, cool, you know, industry acquisition, no big deal. So really, not only does this stuff work, it is the thing that makes the businesses that are most formidable right now, it's the thing that sets them apart. Okay. So I would argue that what drives that process are people and mindset or culture. I know that's a loaded word, but I think both of these companies, right, and correct me if I'm wrong, they both have access to the same 
tech, uh, this will call it just uh, resources or infrastructure, but yet they operate very differently. Is the work that you do as part of prototype thinking also involve that cultural bit that like working with or on people? Absolutely. But I actually think that when people use the word culture, it's imprecise to the point of not being particularly useful. It's it's like if I told you, hey, you know, um, I'm taking you to a great dinner and you're like, well, what what are we going to have? And I'm like, food. And it's like, okay, well, that's right. But it's so imprecise that it's like, how useful is that, right? So when people say, oh, this is a culture issue, it's like, okay. I mean, you've listed a broad category of things, but we're not really having a discussion yet. Now, a, a way to make that that more useful is to understand that culture always appears as a set of observable behaviors, right? Like you can say, oh, we have a totally different culture, but if there's no evidence of that through observable behaviors, well, you basically, if you do have a different culture, it certainly doesn't show. A way simpler way to approach culture is to say, okay, great. Let's talk about a bunch of the observable behaviors that we have in our system right now. And let's, you know, and we'll just list out, you know, on a given week, what are, you know, 40 of the observable behaviors that we're seeing all the time in our employees. And you're going to mark off some of those as, man, this is exactly the, these are the exact observable behaviors that we would want in a really healthy culture. And then you're going to mark off some of the 40 as ones where you say, no, nah, this one, you know, um, is not our best foot forward. And you might mark off a couple more where you say, okay, these are actively toxic. These go and destroy value inside of the business. And I think when you start from something that is that specific, then it actually, working on culture becomes something that is way more straightforward than what people have, have um, been doing so far. Because what they do so far, it's like, no, you just need to have a little bit more of a growth mindset. And it's like, okay, shoot, well, uh, let's, let's try to learn about that then. And I'm not saying even that is not a bad idea. It's like, that's a great idea, but it's actually an even better idea if that's tied to specific observable behaviors that you're trying to change, right? So, oh, when we're in this type of meeting, I notice that we're, we're exhibiting this type of behavior a lot. Well, cool. Well, what is the way, what are some ways that we want to experiment with other ways of running that meeting, other ways of showing up in that meeting, other ways of contributing or keeping each other in check. And then it becomes, it plugs in just as neatly as the experiments that you might be able to do on product or service. You can plug in some of these observable behavior changes into exactly the same experimental approach that you do for all the other things in the business. So um, taking all of that into account, if you know, let's let's do a mind experiment or thought experiment. If Walmart were to buy Whole Foods and you are called in to work with them, run a prototype thinking workshop, for example, what would that look like? What would you focus on? Yeah, well, we might do stuff, something like we say, let's talk about you know, you guys, actually, Walmart's already in the grocery industry, so they have a history of this. And at the point that they would acquire Whole Foods, if they had, then, you know, there'd be things that they'd want to do going forward. So we would quickly do an inventory of, okay, you guys have been in the grocery industry for the last 10 years. And tell me about 
the major releases and the major experiments, whether successful or failed, that you have done in the last year. And that should literally take five minutes to write down at the most for a bunch of people, especially the slow organizations that you know, I, I sometimes get called into to kind of shake things up, then that's zero. That's the number of things that have happened. So, so um, in terms of like really compelling experiments, all that kind of thing, it's like, okay, no, I, I got it. And then, you know, we, we start from there and we say, well, look, the rate of learning of your organization is the crux of how competitive you're going to be in the industry. The organizations that are the most adaptable that are able to take advantage of the key opportunities, you know, in a timely manner are the ones that are able to, you know, learn the fastest and learning the fastest comes directly from how rapidly can you do effective experiments. So we'll do some stuff like say, okay, well, let's say that number came out to be real small, like zero or one or two. And we, and then we'll break it down. We say, okay, what happened? Like, like you, you did this particular experiment. How did you do it? What did you learn? And why did it take the time that it took? And we'll go break that down into the parts. Now, when it breaks down into the parts, this is where, you know, that blend of what you're referring to as culture and, you know, and uh, some of the elements that I was referring to as rapid prototyping or design science, you know, come into play. Because when things are slow, it's not always a mechanical thing like, oh, we just didn't experiment fast. Sometimes it's a psychological thing where because of the existing culture, there was a set of observable behaviors that kind of led everybody astray. Oh, well, there's this kind of proposal process and we only look at, you know, new innovation, you know, uh, investment once every three months. And this one, you know, just missed the deadline. So that's why it took five months because, you know, we almost hit this, you know, uh, deadline after two months to bring it in front of the executive decision makers, but we kind of missed it. And then three months later, you can say, well, great. You know, there's a procedural element uh, to that. There's a psychological element to that. And that's where we'll start kind of digging in and we'll say, well, okay, we, we know that we don't like this. What's the first experiment that we could do that would, that would do anything different than this? And this is an important point because a lot of times, as soon as people say, oh, we don't like a thing, then they start getting into a long conversation about like, well, what would be the ideal solution? And what I'm telling you is like, just drop that part. Like the, like the presumption that you'll be able to even, you know, come up with the ideal solution without experimentation is typically not right. So like for folks to, you know, be like, oh, there's a chance to redesign the process. Let's, let's go work on those ideal solutions. Um, you know, I'm not saying that you can't dream, but like dream for like 15 minutes. Like, you know, do not go into some long discussion process around like, oh, and then, you know, we can't really do this until the, the chief strategy officer gets a chance to review our new ideal state, blah, blah, blah. And we build 15 personas around it. And I'm like, sheesh, people, just tell me something that you could try today or tomorrow that you believe would have any kind of different result than what you just saw. And then we literally try it that day. And that is a very important reset for them. The, the sensibility that, you know, discussion is not the main way that things get done. The main way that things get done is experimentation and observation. I would also say, like, there's a lot of freedom in being released from the 
um, constant thinking or worry about the consequences of every decision that you make. But um, like if you if you take something like Google Glass, we did 150 hardware prototypes in the first 10 weeks. Or Project Loon, we did 100 hardware prototypes in the first four months. Like that's that's a rate of experimentation that basically uh, almost nobody in the world is able to touch. In a more recent project that I'm doing some product management and engineering management for, uh, we got a grant from the National Science Foundation to build a robot to replant coral reefs. And we went from the thing doesn't exist at all to we are doing our first you know, pilot run of uh, you know, prepping an area and putting a, uh, you know, a simulated coral into it, like physically in our test tank. Uh, all that happened in in around three months, and that represented you know, about thirty experiments. So yeah, it basically can work for pretty much anything. I, I've I've worked you know on quote unquote cultural issues in in Fortune five hundred companies. I've worked on obviously advanced hardware and software systems, but I've also worked on like kind of standard business process improvements and operational improvements and supply chain improvements, all the regular stuff of business, um, you can go apply a approach which is not about discussion and consensus as the way that you make sense of things, but experimentation and observation, and then rapid experimentation to be able to make it much, much faster. But like going from, from consensus and discussion uh, as the way that you're deciding to to experimentation observation, that just that by itself improves the accuracy, you know, by a huge amount. Like, like let's say you're 10x more accurate. But then when you're able to do the experimentation rapidly, then you win both on time and accuracy. So then it ends up not even close. Yeah, that's an important point. So be, beyond your work as now a VC and the prototyping, the prototype thinking work that you do, I would, I guess that you would call that consulting, right? Yeah. And I also teach an online course about it, but sure. Yeah. So, okay. Let's focus on online courses. I know you're putting out a new course or working on a new course called Future Skills Toolbox. Yep. What is that toolbox? What's in the, what's in the toolbox and, and why that specific topic? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people have pointed to kind of the failings of the education system uh, for the for the needs of the current day modern economy. And that's kind of on the input side in terms of, you know, as people are learning the basic skills to go and do something in the workplace. But in the implementation side of things, I know that there's a lot of folks that are already, you know, out in the workforce and they're very worried about things like, you know, robotics, automation, artificial intelligence, that kind of thing. And as a person that has done a lot in their career on robotics, automation, artificial intelligence, and has a pretty good sense of what the machines do well and what they don't do well, then I wanted to do a course that would address both of those issues. So for people that are coming into the workforce and trying to, you know, have the skills that they need, you know, for this coming century, then what are the key things to know about? And the folks that are currently in the workforce and are concerned about the future relative to robotics and automation and AI, how do you go address those concerns? And then this is all against the backdrop of what I think is the 
the magnum opus of the 21st century is for us to come into a different relationship to nature. So I wanted to kind of teach across those three sets of contributing concerns. And very briefly, you know, one of the things that I teach is that um, there's four C's, the, the letter C, that will go and make up the foundation of most of the jobs in a world where there's a lot of robotics and automation. Uh, because these are the the C's represent skills that that uh, robots and and software are not likely to get good at anytime soon. And the four C's are creativity, compassion, community, and critical thinking. And I expect, you know, for the majority of the jobs in the future that humans do to have an element of one of those four or combination of a couple of the things in that four, those four. And to the extent that you actually study those four C's as skills that are as material as reading and writing or, you know, um, or basic math skills or trade skills, then you're better prepared for the century that's coming. So you talked about one of the modules. I want to ask you about another one, uh, which kind of caught my eye, um, radical harmony. Yeah. What, what is that? So basically, we have a lot of disharmony. Uh, both between humanity and the environment and humanity and humanity. And I think a lot of the construction of the future economy, if we are to survive on this planet in a in the longer time frame, and unlike a lot of dystopian novels, I'm at least trying to go posit that we might be able to. Uh, I'm not a blind optimist that says, oh yeah, of course, we're going to solve all the problems. It's not like a, you know, Steven Pinker, like, you know, the better angels of our nature, like, oh, we're just on this curve. It's it's absolutely going to solve itself. It's like, no, I don't think so. We actually just need to uh, to do this hard work. And the hard work is the work of radical harmony. It is the rethinking of the industrial economy so that it does not damage nature. And better yet, it regenerates nature. It is a rethinking of, of social structures and and interactions in such a way that you know, the more time we spend together, the stronger that we are as as a civilization, and the more you know compassion that we have for each other. And it's it's quite contrary to a number of things that are happening on the social side front uh, right now, and it is um, contrary to the way that we've done the industrial economy for the last two hundred years. So uh, that's what makes it radical. When you when you talk about um, nature. Is that in the context of the environment only, or is it also human nature? Well, well, I care about both of them. And just to you know, add a level of precision, so nature is defined you know, for the purposes of this work as air, water, soil, and biodiversity. And air includes things like the balance of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and water includes things, you know, of course, water pollution, but also healthy hydrological cycles, uh, atmospheric hydrology, ground hydrology, uh, surface hydrology. And then soil and biodiversity are relatively self-explanatory, but it's it's really clear actually, you know, these are all measurable things where we can tell whether our our actions are having a positive or negative influence across those four domains. And for everything that we have in the current industrial economy, each industry has intrinsically has a footprint on those four things. And you need to ask yourself, well, for the things that are intrinsically extractive, how do you make that footprint as small as possible? 
And for the things that are generative, then you can ask yourself, how could we do this in such a way that the earth is, the conditions of nature across air, water, soil, biodiversity are actually improved by doing this work? And just to give you one more piece on that front is everybody that's listening, you just look around your room. And everything that's in your room, everything that you see in front of you was either mined, you know, dug out of the earth or grown. And there's no exceptions. Everything around you was either mined or grown. And everything around growing, we can do it in a way that heals the earth, right? Um, it builds better soil, you know, improves uh, hydrology, um, cleans the air. So everything around you that's grown can actually be an active contributor to a healthy ecosystem and you know creating habitat and and rebalancing you know the carbon in the atmosphere and everything that's mined we can ask ourselves the question how small can we make the industrial footprint of that and between those two activities you can get to a world where you know we're doing enough regeneration that it outstrips the the negatives that we are also doing through mining super important if people want to know more about uh, you, the work that you do, and perhaps maybe get involved, uh, where should we direct them? So they can go to my website, uh, just www.tomchi.com, T-O-M-C-H-I.com. And, you know, the, the site for the new venture firm is at oneventures.com, A-T-O-N-E ventures.com. Perfect. Tom, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for, for taking the time. 